Pittsburgh Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, Kevin Smith. We're back after a little hiatus. Missed last week as my family and I did some traveling, and we uh, hopped across the pond, as they say, uh, and I visited Europe for the first time. I've I've done a lot of traveling around the East Coast and uh, or, or around the United States and North America, Mexico, Canada, the Caribbean, etc., but had never made it to Europe, and we were fortunate to be able to, to take a beautiful family vacation, 11 days in Italy, Austria, and Germany, and I just, I can't speak highly enough of what an experience that was, tremendous experience, but glad to be back here now, back home, and got back in time for the 4th of July. Hope everybody had a great 4th of July weekend, and now we're ready to talk some football again. So, I'm your host, Kevin Smith, and uh, as many of you know, those of you who have been following the program, I'm a podcast host here on Fans First doing the call sheet show, but also work for the Steel Curtain Network. I host the Here We Go show with Brian Anthony Davis and write for the now uh, about to be launched, actually, Fans First website, which is really exciting and can't wait to dive into that. So anyway, on today's show, today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about my trip to Europe. And specifically, I don't, I don't mean to, to be selfish and simply just talk about what I did while we were over there, but I was really interested when I went there in the, the interest in the Europeans in football, would there be significant interest in the NFL? Would would people be kind of oblivious to it? I didn't know. And I, and I wanted to, to have the opportunity to talk to as many people as I could understanding that language would be a barrier. We were fortunate on our trip to have gone with some friends and one of our friends, Giovanna was born in Italy, spoke fluent Italian. So that made it a little bit easier. We could, we could ask questions of people of the locals and Giovanna would serve as our translator. So I got a decent feel for it. Uh, before we get into that, just, just some quick comments. We, we were able to, we flew into Rome and we traveled from Rome up to Florence and then to Venice and from Venice, we, we, we crossed the Italian Alps into Austria, the Austrian Alps, and we're in Salzburg in Austria, and then finished the trip up in Munich, Germany. And it was a heck of an experience, man. I mean, I don't know for the listeners out there who's, who's been through Europe, but it was a, a beautiful, beautiful place, uh, incredible quality of life there, uh, and very, very different. You know, as you, as you traveled through Europe, not only did the scenery change and uh, the, you know, the kind of the customs, but the lifestyle changed, especially once you crossed the Alps, when you were into Austria and Germany, you, you understood you were in a very, very different place. And I want to talk about that a little bit. So we went over there and obviously the goal was to enjoy a family vacation. But as I told my wife, I said, Hey, uh, <laughs> babe, I'm going to be doing some work while we're here. And that work wasn't exactly heavy lifting, but it it surfaced in the form of talking to first the Italian people and eventually the Germans about professional football, or as they say, American football. And as you can imagine, uh, Italy was just soccer crazy. Everywhere you went, there was, uh, there were soccer jerseys. There were from Rome, uh, you know, you're walking through the, the old, 
areas of Rome where you have these 2,500 year old ruins and it's just fabulous to look at, but people were just adorned in soccer jerseys. And I don't know a darn thing about soccer. I I'd be lying if I even told you that I know the names of some of the most famous soccer players in the world today, outside of maybe Lionel Messi and some of the guys who I think everybody knows, but everywhere we went, people were adorned in soccer jerseys. When we were in the Coliseum, I remember our tour guide, you know, Giovanna, our friend who we, we called her, our tour guide, uh, our friend Giovanna laughing while overhearing a conversation uh, from uh, of a couple of Italian men who were talking about what a great soccer stadium the Coliseum must have been. And that's kind of funny when you consider the nature of the Coliseum. And I mean, some of the, some of the stuff that went down in the Coliseum, well, you're talking about some dark stuff. Uh, but, you know, I guess it would have made a great, made a great soccer venue. But it was really interesting when we left Rome, we went to Florence and we stayed in a hotel outside the city, maybe 10 miles outside the city in a really tiny kind of nowhere town. And we were coming back from dinner one night and it was about dusk and it didn't get dark in Italy till around almost 930 at night. And it was around dusk. So it was probably 915 or so. And we were on, on a bus traveling back to our, our hotel. And I just happened to kind of look out the window and there was this really kind of amazing scene, just a, a small uh, empty lot dirt, maybe some patches of grass in it, predominantly dirt with a concrete wall at one end and the rest of it was fairly open. And there was a, a, a single street light that was illuminating this lot. And there had to be 20, 25 young kids somewhere between the ages of maybe 10 and 15 or 16 in that lot. And they had somebody had spray painted the outline of a soccer goal against the the concrete wall that was at the far end of the lot. And you had these 20 or so kids all playing soccer with it, with a goalie standing in front of the makeshift goal. And it, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to really look at their skill level or analyze it like that, but it was just a great, a great feel, a great vibe. It just felt like so wholesome to me. It just felt like, Oh man, this is the heart and soul of the country. It would it would be like if you're traveling through America and in some small town uh, in the middle of nowhere, you just saw a bunch of kids playing a pickup football game, and it really just sort of gave you a feel for Italy. But there was no trace of the NFL in Italy. Nothing. I didn't see an NFL jersey. We went into some touristy areas and into some shops. I didn't see any NFL memorabilia. When we talked to Italians about football, they all, of course, thought we were talking about soccer. So you had to context it and say American football. And a lot of a lot of the people just shook their head. No, no, no. Like, I, you know, I didn't know if I could could interpret that as we're not fans or we don't even know anything about it. But there just wasn't any elements within the Italian culture that indicated that American football was important. And I was wondering why I was, I was thinking to myself, well, why, why is that? Why has the sport that has increasingly become global really not taken hold in Italy? And I think one of the reasons uh, was sort of revealed when we went to Florence, which is a magnificent city, absolutely beautiful. One of the capitals of art on the entire planet, these 
elegant plazas with these beautiful uh, sculptures in them, restaurants where the food is to die for. And, and my wife asked Giovanna about going shopping to do, you know, look for some souvenirs. She wanted to, she wanted to pick up some artwork. And Giovanna said, well, you better do it before one o'clock because all the shops close at one. And she was right. Everything shut down at one o'clock for a couple of hours. And, and they eventually reopened around three, three thirty. But everybody went home for a couple of hours and they had lunch with their families and and they hung out and they took a little nap. And they just didn't feel the need within the framework of their society to to be work, work, work all the time and go, go, go. And, and I think that sort of soccer fits that mindset a little bit more. It's, it's, a, it's a more laid back sport. You watch a soccer contest. And I, again, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of a complete amateur when it comes to my understanding of soccer. But when I watch soccer, I think to myself, well, there's not much going on. There's, you know, there's, there is. I mean, there's action. It's constant action. There's not a lot of whistles. The play doesn't stop. It's, it's, it's fluid. But if it's one nothing at halftime, that's a high-scoring soccer game. And then the strategy in the second half changes and everybody packs it in. And it almost felt to me like that fit Italian society. It was very laid back. People were very casual, very comfortable. And I understood why the NFL really didn't resonate with Italian people. But then we crossed the Alps. And when you cross the Alps, you get into Austria and uh, we went white water rafting in Austria in the coldest river I've ever been in in my entire life. It was stunningly cold. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and we got into Germany and everything was different. Everything. The language was different. The pace was different. It was much, much faster. The body types were different because the food was so different. Everything in Italy was just sort of light and fresh. Even the pasta, which feels heavy here in America, was very light. But man, in Germany, everything felt like what you maybe think of when you think of Germany. It was the food was heavy. The accents were heavy. The people were bigger and bulkier. There was a there was a nationalism in Germany that did not exist in Italy. We, we went into a beer hall to have lunch uh, the, it, it seated 700 people. And it was at near capacity at 1130 in the morning. And. On the, on the half an hour, there was a live band there, all horns, trumpets and saxophones and some sort of German instruments. I don't even know, some kind of horn. But uh, at on the half an hour, every half every half an hour, every 30 minutes, they, they, they launched into this sort of German anthem that everybody in the place knew. And we just happened to be walking in at 1130 and boom, this song strikes and it's horns and 700 people at the top of their lungs are singing this song. And you're looking around and it's 1130 in the morning and everybody's eating sausages and, and uh, sauerkraut and drinking what looked to be like 48 ounce beers out of these magnificent steins. And it was, and you know, it was the men and the women, right? It was just a thicker, tougher culture and tougher might be the wrong word. Cause that might be an American perspective. But you understood immediately why football has resonated with the German people. The NFL has been really successful in Germany the past two years. So successful that they're going to have two NFL games there this year in 2023. And we didn't really speak the language, 
But we did get a chance to sort of talk to some people, and they loved the NFL. They raved about NFL football. And you saw NFL jerseys all over Europe. I asked my wife to sort of keep an unofficial tally in her mind of the ones she saw, and then we kind of put them with the ones that I saw. And it was clear that there were three teams who were the most represented in Germany. They were the New England Patriots, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Kansas City Chiefs. Those three teams, we saw lots and lots and lots of NFL jerseys all throughout Germany. And we had a conversation uh, at, a, at a plaza one day in Munich with uh, a German man who was in his 30s, and he was raving about the NFL, American football, he kept saying. And he spoke English with a, a reasonably thick accent. And I asked him, what does he like? What did you like about it? And he said the hitting, 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 tackling, tackle, tackle. And he said that he had some experience with rugby and that it was a it was a faster version of rugby. And I was I was fascinated to hear it. It just really sounded uh, like the German people uh, understand football and they co- sort of get it in all of its glory. The athleticism mixed with the violence and the strategic challenges. So that was very interesting. And just to sort of compare the two cultures, the Italian culture and the German culture, and and look at the way in which the NFL does or does not resonate. And then I got on a plane and I flew home. Uh, and it was a 10-hour flight from Munich to Charlotte before our connecting flight to Philadelphia, where I live kind of in the Philadelphia area. And I sat next to a man named Eric, and I don't know Eric's last name. Uh, I know that Eric was from Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And I know that his son was a 16-year-old who played football at the, the local high school there. And so we had a long conversation about, about what that means. And it was really fascinating. He was talking about the amount of time that they spend. And he was not a real big guy. He said his son was a cornerback and that he was going to be a junior on the football team this year. And he was hoping to compete for a starting spot. And he just talked about how hard he worked, right? Four days a week in the weight room, with the high school team, starting early in the morning, 6 a.m. lifts before school. And now that we were in the summertime, he was going back. Now, he had been in Germany on business, so he was away from his family for a few days. And he was coming back, and his son's football season was starting. And they would go all summer long. And his son would do this willingly, without any promise that he was going to be a starter or a varsity player. And just the hope that he'd be able to compete for that. And and as I talked to as I talked to Eric, he kept saying the same thing that like, you know, hey, my son just wants a chance. And I didn't mention this at the outset, but many of you know I'm the head coach of a high school program, Ocean City, New Jersey. And we're into our season. We're into our summer season right now. And same thing, man. The same thing's going on. I got 60 young men competing uh, to be members of our varsity program. And we know who some of our starters are going to be. But for a lot of these kids, it's just an, a, a competition and they want an opportunity and they're willing to work really hard in order to do it. And what was really cool was when we got back on July 2nd, uh, which I'm sorry, uh, the second was a Sunday. We had practice on Monday, the third. And when we got out there on the field were some NFL players. So Ocean City, where I live and work is a big resort town. It, we, it's about 12,000 people year round. 
and it swells to about 120,000 people in the summer. And it's a big resort for people from the Philadelphia and New York area. And we get a lot of professional athletes that come down and they spend time, particularly in July, because July is the dead area of the NFL calendar. And when we went out there, we got the, had the opportunity to just kind of sit and work and look a little bit as Trace McSorley, former Penn State quarterback now of the New England Patriots, Sean Clifford, also former Penn State quarterback who was just drafted by the Green Bay Packers, uh, and uh, Will Howard, who is the going to be the starting quarterback at Kansas State this year. Those three guys were on the field working out, going through their drills. And it was amazing to watch them work. Their work ethic, their skill level was incredible. And that's what I want to talk about after the break, as we head into our break here. When we come back on the other side, I want to talk about how hard it is to actually make it to the NFL, how elite you really have to be. And I'll talk just a little bit about our observations, watching watching Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford work out up close, talking to them after practice, having the opportunity to talk to them. Some of the other experiences that I've had with NFL players and people who have had a shot to make it in the league and just their experiences and the things that they've gone through. And I want to context it from the point of view of a fan because fans are super critical, right? Really critical they're 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 quick to say this guy sucks that guy's you know that guy's a disgrace that guy stinks get him off the field and that's a natural reaction and it's understandable but i wonder if fans have any idea how good these guys really are so when we come back on the other side of the break let's talk about how the nfl is truly the elite of the elite and if you make it there in any way shape or form you are among the world's best in your profession. And that's pretty cool. So stick around. With our Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you. We are talking about the talent level in the NFL and the uh, amazing ability of players even on the fringe level even some of the lower level nfl players or guys who make it to camps and maybe don't even stick with teams and and just talking about how remarkably talented those players are and the amount of work that that players put in at all levels from the high school level all the way up into the pros just to have the opportunity to succeed and before the break i I preface some of these comments with uh, briefly mentioning that as I came back from my trip in Europe and our football team at Ocean City High School started to train in our summer program on Monday, that uh, we had the pleasure to just kind of hang out with some NFL guys on our field. Uh, Sean Clifford of the Packers, Trace McSorley of the Patriots, two young NFL quarterbacks, both Penn State graduates. Now you got to understand, Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford were two highly decorated college quarterbacks. Trace McSorley led Penn State to the Rose Bowl. Sean Clifford graduated, or when he left Penn State, I should say, as one of the Big Ten's most decorated passers of all time. I mean, if you play in the Rose Bowl, 
or if you are among the top Big Ten, think about the Big Ten, think about the quarterbacks they've produced, and you're one of the top producers statistically in the history of that conference, how good do you have to be? And as we as we watch these guys work, it was fascinating because Trace McSorley is not real big. He's he's probably on a good day six one and might be 205, 210 pounds. I mean, our starting quarterback uh, at our high school, who's going to be a junior, is bigger. He's about 6'2", 205, 208. And so you look at Trace McSorley and you think, all right, well, he doesn't have the physical gifts that some of these players have. He hasn't, a quote I like to use is, he didn't win the genetic lottery, right? He didn't win the genetic lottery. He's not... 6'5 and 230 pounds like some of these quarterbacks are. Will Howard, man, Will, uh, uh, the other guy who I mentioned earlier, who Kansas State's starting quarterback, he's a dude. I don't know how big Will Howard is. I'd have to look it up. But he looked like 6'4", 6'5", 220, 225. He just looked like an NFL quarterback. But Trace McSorley doesn't really look like an NFL quarterback. And so how did he How did he get to the NFL? I mean, he's, he's with his third NFL team now, or second or third. He was with the Ravens. Uh, now he's with the Patriots. I'm not sure if he was with somebody else. But but how did he get there? How did he become such a, a decorated college quarterback and now a guy who's managed to, to hang around the NFL for a few years? And it's his work ethic. We stood there and watched as they went through their stuff. Uh, they were probably – they probably w- went for – 20 minutes, 30 minutes while we were watching, and then another hour or so. They're probably there 90 minutes altogether as we started our own practice. And it was just one after another, man, ripping throws, uh, everything that you could think of from the shotgun under center, moving the pocket, throwing three-step drop, five-step drop, seven-step drop from under center, and and just constantly going one after another. And it, it's interesting to, to listen to as well because – the NFL has got a language all to its own. Trace McSorley would say to his receivers, all right, H2, H2. And I think to myself, well, what's H2? And I don't know exactly how they term it in the NFL, but it looked like it looked like uh, deep cross, right? It looked like Y cross, the Y receiver crossing the formation behind the backers. Y cross is one of the most commonly run routes in the NFL. Uh, or you'd say basic, basic, and I, basic was a was a deep end, what we what we call a dig route, about a, a twelve to fourteen yard in cut, another route that takes advantage off of play action predominantly of aggressive linebackers, or or they he call Hank, all right, we're going to run Hank, um, and you know that's a term that you say to yourself, what the heck's Hank, and Hank's curl flat, curl flat's a, a route that everybody runs, everybody from the high school level to the pros runs, where you're your number two or your slot receiver, your tight ends running a flat route and your outside receivers run a curl. Everybody runs curl flat, but they call it Hank at the NFL level. So it's fascinating just sort of to listen to them talk about things from the NFL perspective. Uh, but as you watch them work, Sean Clifford and, and, and Trace McSorley, it gave me a great appreciation for some of the young men who I've had the opportunity to know, associate with, et cetera, who've had an opportunity to, to make it to the league. I think back to a friend of mine who I grew up with, my my buddy Dave Baird, uh, who we you know we know we first met each other when we were eight years old, and we went through high school together, and then he went to Lafayette College and he became a record-setting wide receiver at Lafayette 
for a while there. He held a bunch of their school records as a receiver. And he wound up getting a tryout with the Philadelphia Eagles. And he was big. He was 6'2 and 205 pounds. And he was a 4'4-something uh, runner in the 40-yard dash. And he and I were fairly comparable as athletes for a long time. And then he got to college and he hit a growth spurt and he just took off, man. And there, there reached a point where I just couldn't cover him anymore. <laughs> you know, like he had just like jumped the level that I had never made it to. And he wound up with the Eagles. And uh, I remember talking to him. He goes to Eagles mini camp and he's there with a bunch of draft picks and undrafted free agents. He, he had signed as an undrafted free agent. And this is the this is the Eagles of the late 80s, early 90s. It was probably around 1992. And their quarterbacks were Randall Cunningham and Jim McMahon. And he talked about Jim McMahon, what a character he was, how he would fall asleep in every meeting. Yet he knew everything there was to know about playing quarterback. He knew every route, what every line uh, lineman was supposed to do, all the line assignments, all the call checks, everything. And uh, it just it just came easy to him. And he talked about being in the huddle at at their mini camp one time and he wasn't sure about what route he was supposed to run so he asked another receiver what do i got on this play and their other receiver told him whatever you got this route and dave gets out there and he runs the route and after he runs the route he comes back to the huddle and mcmahon rips him absolutely rips him for running the wrong route and and what dave realized was oh my god man that that other receiver told me to run the wrong route on purpose and it sort of dawned on him at that moment that, hey, this is a business, man. This is a cutthroat business. And guys are willing to do just about anything to make the roster because they're all chasing a lifelong dream. And, you know, Dave eventually got cut and didn't didn't make it into the NFL. Yet to this day, he remains one of the best natural athletes of anybody I've ever been around. And on, another story real quick. Um, this is kind of a sad story because this past week, uh, we lost somebody who most of you listening will have never heard of uh, a young man. And I, I, he, he was 54 years old. So I guess not that young, but far too young to pass away named Darren Drozdov. And Darren Drozdov was a legend when I was growing up. He grew up very close to me, about 15 minutes away, went to Oakcrest High School, which was a rival of the high school I attended. And we had some really good battles. We lost to Oakcrest High School when I was a junior, seven to six. And we lost to him as this, when I was a senior, 22 to 21. So a couple of heartbreakers. And Darren Drozdov was their quarterback. And he was about 6'4 and 230 pounds, which as a high school quarterback in the late 1980s, you can imagine that that was different, man. He was a grown man playing, playing quarterback. Not only was he a grown man, but he was a spectacle to look at. We, we all... All the high school kids worked out at the same gym where I was growing up, the gold, the local Gold's gym. And Darren Drozdov looked like Ivan Drago from, from Rocky Four. He was he had the mohawk, big, big blonde mohawk. He was dressed in nothing but spandex attire, spandex pants, tiny, tiny little tank tops. Uh I he may or may not have been uh taking some supplements that led to his uh, his growth in the weight room, I, I won't speculate, but he sure looked the part. And he was flamboyant and he was loud and he got all of our attention. And But he was likable. He was a likable kid and he went on to the University of Maryland where, where interestingly, they converted him from playing quarterback to playing nose tackle. 
and he beefed up to about 290 pounds and was eventually drafted by the Denver Broncos, where he very famously earned the nickname Puke because on a Monday night football game with the Broncos, uh, he got in the game at nose tackle and he was so nervous he threw up onto the football uh, as the offense was the coming out of the huddle. <laughs> and it earned him the nickname Puke. And he didn't really stick in the NFL for very long. He was he was out of the NFL after a couple of seasons. He kicked around with a couple other teams. He was with the Jets and the Eagles. And then he was out of the NFL after a couple of years. And he went into pro wrestling where, where he, he, he joined the WWE, which was the WWF back then, for those of you who may remember. Uh, and he was and he ran under the nickname of Draz uh, and, and had a lot of success, made it on to the, to the big tour where The Rock was just coming up. And Draz and The Rock did a lot of cards together and, and worked together, did some matches together. Uh, and very, very tragically, in the early uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Darren Drozdoff, while performing in a WWE event was paralyzed in the ring when he just kind of landed wrong coming off of a rope and uh, was paralyzed from the, from the neck down and uh, obviously lived out the rest of his life as a quadriplegic. And, and he just, he passed away last week. Uh, and it, and it got, kind of got me reflecting on Darren Drozdov. He's such an interesting character, a good dude, a flamboyant, memorable individual. And one of the most, talented football players I've ever been around. And he was a fringe NFL player. And so it really gets you to sort of think about the greatness of so many of these players and the amazing work ethic that goes into simply making it to the NFL. And as you might imagine, the best of the best are also the hardest workers. There are very few players for whom talent alone is enough to get it done. Like a guy like Randy Moss kind of comes to mind and people always criticize Randy Moss for never working as hard maybe as he could have. And yet you think about what he was as an NFL player and he was just sort of on a different level, probably the best receiver in the game for a short period of time in the mid two thousands there, the Patriots team that he was on uh, that went 18 and zero in the regular season and then lost in the Super Bowl. 16-0 and and then 18-0 and by the time they got to the Super Bowl and lost to the Giants. It was such a remarkable team to watch. The, the chemistry he had with Tom Brady in that one season he was there. Uh, and you think, like, man, what if Randy Moss had worked like some of the others? Uh, and even Randy Moss worked really, really hard and, and got criticized all the time for, for not having a great work ethic. I think that's because he made it look so easy. It reminds me of when I was a kid, Mike Schmidt. The, the Hall of Fame third baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies was always criticized by Phillies fans for not having that a greater work ethic. But it wasn't that he didn't work hard. He made the game look so easy. That's how talented he was. But those guys are anomalies. For most players, the amazing amount of work that they have to do to come to the league is just staggering. And I was thinking about that as I was watching Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford train on our field the other day. And, and I, I had such great respect for them and such gratitude for them. And I don't think that this is going to stop anybody when they're watching an NFL game and somebody who's maybe a, a reserve, a backup comes onto the field uh, or somebody who maybe you don't like in the first place, especially quarterbacks because it's such a high profile position, throws a big interception 
And then right away, man, you know, he, he stinks. He stinks. And it's so easy to say that. It's so and so natural to say it. I've said it many, many times. Uh, or or to jump on the coaches. Why, why the hell are you running that play? Right? That play never works. Why are you running that play? That you know, this OC, this he's a moron, man. Fire that guy. It's so easy to say those things. But when you when you realize how talented these players truly are it it sort of hopefully makes you step back from your emotions and appreciate them a little bit more so (laughs) hug a football player ladies and gentlemen if you run into a pro football player give them a hug give them a hug they need it man they get criticized so tremendously from us and we fail for most of them to have any respect for how good they really are. I just thought that this was an interesting conversation to have in the middle of July in the down season because there's nothing going on in the NFL right now. We, we look at what's happening uh, with teams and there's no news, right? Everybody, the mini camps are over. We're in the sort of dead period. We're still three weeks away for, from training camp, two and a half weeks for, for most teams. And, and, you know, you think, hey, what are these guys doing right now? Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience, what these guys are doing, man, is they're grinding. They're working their butts off at their craft because they understand that the proving grounds are close. And for guys like Trace McSorley and Sean Clifford, they're going to have to make rosters. They, they're not first-round draft picks. They're not multimillionaires. They're guys who are going to have to earn it and prove it every day. And when I watch them work, I have tremendous respect for them, man. So shout out to those guys and to all the young guys, man, just trying, whether you're trying to make your high school team, like Eric from Rocky Mount, your son, I wish him the best of luck. He's trying to get a starting position on his high school team. And the guys that I was able to kind of get a close look at the other day, they're trying to make NFL rosters and live the dream that Eric's son and people like myself and probably many, many of the people listening have always had. So that's our show, ladies and gentlemen, a little tribute to the true talent uh, of, of NFL players. And as we get closer to the season, we'll really start weighing in on uh, what's going to happen in the NFL and looking at, at different teams and expectations and things like that. And some of the things we've done previously on the call sheet is to break down schemes and, and we'll keep doing those things as well. But as we're in this sort of dead period Uh, I hope you enjoyed this conversation because I thought it was a meaningful one. So that's it for me, Kevin Smith, man. I hope you guys will tune in next week. And if you all get a chance, check out the new FFSN.com website as it, as it launches and uh, all the exciting things that we got going on here at fans first. All right, everybody enjoy your July. I'll see you in a week. Take care.